as our gift to you. Uh, Again, it will be Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from, Decap- and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kyle. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be back with you guys. And for those of you who may be visiting for the first time, as John mentioned, a warm welcome to you. And regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey, uh, maybe you don't consider yourself Christian at all. Uh, Maybe you don't like the Christian faith. Uh, Maybe you've been going to church for a long time. We're just really thrilled that you're here to worship with us. And we hope that you see the person of Jesus because that's who we're about. And uh, in light of that, we are in a a year-long sermon series, at least, uh, looking at the person of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And today is a big deal because this is the first time in the narrative where Jesus teaches for the first time. It's his coming out party, you could say. And so let's engage our imagination a little bit. I know John's the only artist or storyteller in the congregation, but let's try to engage our imagination a little bit to put ourselves in this scene because this is such a key moment. So imagine you are a first century Jew living in Capernaum, which is a multi-ethnic trading town on the northern tip of a charming freshwater lake called the, or uh, charming freshwater sea called the Sea of Galilee. Your life, however, is not so charming because your home is a militarized zone, a fact that you're reminded of daily as the Roman military bullies make their rounds. Your brother and sister-in-law have been so oppressed by the tyranny of Roman taxes that they had to sell themselves into debt savory, and they lost their farm. And so on one ordinary morning, you wake up and you step into the cool morning air, and as the town stirs, you hear an excited conversation off to your left. And you hear a group of people telling tales of a traveling preacher, a teacher, a prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. And the tale is that he has made Capernaum, where you live, his home base, And today, he's coming to your synagogue to teach. So, considering this, you move on your day, but you can't quite get this news out of your mind. And so, as dust settles, you fold up your fishing net, you put your weaving supplies away, you put the warm bread on the table, you tell your kids to stay put, and with curiosity pulling you forward, you patter over to your synagogue. And as you do, to your surprise, you see a massive crowd buzzing, everybody trying to fight to get into the small area that seats about 50, where this person, Jesus, is teaching. 
And as you crane your neck trying to get a better view to see, to see this incredible teacher, the crowd goes silent as the teacher's voice rings out into the still evening air. Now, what does he say? Like you're there, what, what do you think you hear? Do you hear him say, pursue your dreams of self-actualization and coziness, and I'm here to give you some, some godly boost along the way? Does he say, you're a sinner going to hell, but don't worry because I've come to die on the cross for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die? And I ask you what he says because what you think Jesus says here has everything to do with what you think Jesus is about. And what you think Jesus is about has everything to do with what you think life is about. And especially if you grew up in the American church, uh, contrary to popular belief, Jesus' main message wasn't you're a sinner on the way to hell, but I've come to die on the cross so you can go to heaven when you die. That, that was a vital aspect of his message, but that wasn't his main message. His main message is what we see here in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, this is the first thing he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is Jesus' core message, bar none. Okay, so throughout the Gospels, we see at least over 100 mentions of the kingdom, 90 of which belong to Jesus. Which is weird because I grew up in a pretty church background, and I heard a lot about other things. I heard a lot about grace. I heard a lot about sin, key concepts that we need and Jesus taught on. But I didn't hear much about the kingdom. And so we better get what the kingdom is if we want to get what life with Jesus is like. And so what we'll do is we'll look at, number one, the history of the kingdom throughout the scriptures. Number two, we'll look at a couple attributes of the kingdom. And then number three, we'll compare Jesus's gospel of the kingdom. Notice here in verses 20, verse 23, it says Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. This was Jesus's gospel. We'll compare it to a few other gospels that most of us have likely been shaped by, at least if you've grown up in the West. Okay, so the history of the kingdom, the attributes of the kingdom, and then finally we'll compare Jesus' gospel of the kingdom to some other gospels. And as we head into this, the last, just so you know, a prefatory note, the last few weeks have been pretty application, illustration heavy. Today is a lot more high level, but if you're the kind of person who can't pay attention longer than a TikTok video or an Instagram post, I encourage you to lean in because not to dissimilar from if you're a, an amazing cook like we have people here who can cook amazing food robert makes things that are only in my fantasies okay but the reason why a good cook can make good things right, is because they understand how the science of food works right how compounds work together how temperature comes together all those things so the people receiving the meal get something amazing right and if they start to explain food science to you your eyes might glaze over right but by their robust understanding of that foundation they can enjoy amazing food, and so can others. And so as we look at this kingdom, I encourage you to hang in here because it will give you a strong foundation, a stronger foundation from which you can live and through which you can disciple other people to know Jesus as well, okay? So first, looking at the history of the kingdom. So when Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, he's not pulling this out of nowhere. Okay, this is a dominant thread that has run throughout the entire scriptures. And so Think about where do you think the first mention of the kingdom shows up in the scriptures? 
If you're thinking Genesis 1, you're right. Okay, when in doubt, just guess as early as possible. Genesis 1 is where the, it's the first time the kingdom is mentioned, and that's where God creates human beings to be in a relationship of love and trust with him, and he puts them in this paradise garden, and he tells them their role is to have dominion. And so this is the language of kingdom, because dominion was the language of kingly rule. Eve and her husband Adam were to uh, cultivate the land, and they were to exercise, they were to act as many kings or many rulers under God's kingship. And the key boundary for this paradise project to work is that God is the one who defines good and evil, not them. Well, I mean, because not to, right, similar to in the kingdom of Hogwarts, right, in order for that kingdom to work, these students have to follow what good and evil is with magic as Dumbledore defines it, right? But we see someone named Voldemort who just defines good and evil for himself. Chaos ensues. Similar to here in, in Genesis chapter 3, God's first vice regents, many, many rulers, they execute a coup as well, defining good and evil for themselves, all goes to haywire. But God doesn't abandon this project. He sticks with his people. So in Genesis chapter 12, he calls out Abraham and his family and says, through your family line, somebody is going to come, speaking of Jesus, who's going to restore the kingdom. Fast forward a while, and then we get to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, you see a man who is the epitome of defining good and evil according to selfish human desires. So God's people are millions in number at this point, and Pharaoh is this king, and because he defines good and evil as himself, he can justify things like infanticide and slavery as means to an end. Well, there's this epic dramatic scene where God comes in and opens up a can on the Egyptian gods, and he liberates his people. He pulls them out of Egypt, and as they, after they go through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites sing a song, they compose a song, and the final line of the song is, the Lord will reign forever. Okay, in other words, God is the king. And then God takes them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he establishes a relationship of love and trust with them. He says, all belong to you, and you belong to me. And then he gives them an ethic where should they follow it, it will make them a society of goodness and beauty that stands out in contrast to the dehumanizing nations around them. Now, did Israel let God define good and evil for them? No, no, they did it. Major letdown. Okay, so, so then the rest of the Old Testament is failure on loop as the People rebel, chaos ensues, God disciplines them in love, brings them back to himself, rinse, lather, repeat. Okay, so now let's step back for a moment and see what happens when God is king. He calls a people into intimate relationship. He, we see this in the case of Egypt. He frees the oppressed and drives out evil. It's also the case in the garden, right? He keeps evil out. And then number three, he gives them an ethic in which he defines good and evil, not the people. Okay, those three key things that happen when God becomes king. So note what happens. This is really cool. Note what happens when Jesus steps on the scene. Verse 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you're this first century Israelite, you're not shocked that he is saying this message. Okay, you know this story. What's outrageous is this normal-looking person says the kingdom of heaven is coming through him. And see what happens. In verse 19, he goes up to Peter and Andrew, and he calls a people into himself an intimate relationship. Part one, right? Follow me. Then what? You see this in verse 23, 24, 25. He goes throughout all Galilee, verse, verse 23, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and, right, 
liberating the oppressed and driving out evil. He heals every disease and every affliction among the people. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and he, and those oppressed by demons. And then he gives them an ethic where he says, I define good and evil, not you. And that's what we'll see in the weeks to come. It's, it's one of his most famous teachings. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, to give you a little preview, is how those in the kingdom of Jesus live. And so if somebody were to enter our church, or if somebody were to have a camera observing our lives throughout the week, what they should see is if we belong to Jesus, they should see a people who you could say are living according to the Sermon on the Mount, which is a rebellion against the status quo, the status quo in our own, our own hearts and the status quo of the culture. So they should see a people who are lavish with the resources giving them to gospel ministry and to the poor. They should see a people who bring in the lonely and the, and the unwanted into families and give them a place of belonging. They should see a people of outrageous forgiveness, those who reject excess and arrogance and bitterness, those who adhere to a humanizing sexual ethic. Okay, this is what people should see as they observe us because any time we follow Jesus' teaching, okay, largely embodied in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus means when he says, when you obey me, you make tiny little pockets of heaven intersect with earth. Okay, so that's the ethic that Jesus gives us. And so as we look at this kingdom here, note that it's both personal, okay, there is an intimate relationship God draws us into, but it's also social. The relationship we have with Jesus should always change the relationships we have with other people. Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of the history of the kingdom, okay, leading up to like what you'd be thinking in the first century as Jesus shows up here. So next let's look at what are a couple attributes of the kingdom. And the kingdom's so rich, that's why we can't summarize it in one sermon, but we have this whole series to do. But let's look at two key attributes that we need to, we need to get if, uh, if you're interested in Jesus or if you already follow Jesus. So the first thing, the first, you could call it a pairing or a duet when it comes to the kingdom is it's a kingdom marked by grace and obedience. Grace and obedience. So Jesus is the only God who operates on the principle of grace, meaning you don't need to do anything to enter his kingdom. Everyone is welcome. So notice when he comes and, and he calls Simon and Andrew and then James and John, he says, follow me. Does he call them because they're such good people? No, he calls them because he's good, because he's a God of grace. However, it's grace and obedience, meaning, well, how much you obey or how good of a person you are, never are the terms by which you enter the kingdom, right? You enter by just coming to Jesus. However, an indicator light that you do know Jesus is that you grow in obedience over time. And we know this, one, because Jesus gives an entire three chapters of a sermon on obedience right after this, but also in his, in his, first, um, his first line where he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent doesn't mean feel awful about yourself. Repent means stop what you're doing. You're going north on 95, and you need to turn completely the other, the other way around and drive south. And so it mean, what, when he says repent, he doesn't mean, I need you to cognitively assent to some things about me. But it's a radical reorientation of your life where over time, everything you think, feel, and hope for, 
is defined not by your terms, but by my terms. Okay, so you enter in by grace. Okay, we can't emphasize that enough, but then we grow in obedience. So that's the first aspect or duality of the kingdom. But second is that the kingdom is here. It's both here and it's coming. It's here and it's coming. The theological term for this is the already but not yet. So go back into the shoes of that first century Israelite. You hear Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one of your first thoughts is, is this a joke? I'm still under Roman oppression. My infant daughter just died last month. My brother and sister-in-law are still debt slaves. What do you mean the kingdom is here? And that's because the kingdom has a now, but also a not yet component. So when Jesus first comes, it's a little bit like D-Day when the Allied invasion lands on the shores of Normandy, right? So there was a real victory that was achieved on that day. And in a similar way, when Jesus came, he lived, died, and rose again, a real victory was, was achieved. And now we live in the age, of the age of the Spirit where you and those around you can experience real glimpses of the kingdom. But just like V-Day didn't happen until a year later, same thing with the consummation of Christ's kingdom has not yet happened yet. And so the kingdom isn't just a future reality. It does take place now, however, it is not here in full yet. So it's here and it's coming. Okay, you guys still with me so far? All right. Great, so now in, in light of everything we've just learned to start to apply this to our lives, let's look at some alternate gospels, you could say, or you could call them abridged gospels because these are gospels that get some things right but often have major pitfalls. And what I'm about to do is what you shouldn't do, uh, largely because of time limitation. And so as I go through some of these alternate Gospels, you may feel like I'm caricaturing them, and that's not the intention. Okay, you may come from one of these camps. You may consider yourself to be in one of these camps. Okay, the, in, the purpose of this isn't to say we have it all right. We don't, and it's not to... It's not to be an armchair quarterback. Okay, that's a lazy position to take in any form of engagement. The purpose of this is for us to grow as people who know God. And because we're all shaped by all three of these that we're about to go over, we want to look at how have these blind spots influenced us and that how can that help us grow? All right, so with that caveat, I said no, like taking audio sound bites and posting them to the, the webs after this, right? Let's go through uh, some, of these, uh, some of these alternate gospels that uh, I know I've heard, and you've probably heard as well. So the first one is the evangelical gospel. And the evangelical gospel, you could sum up by, it says, you are a sinner going to hell. But don't worry, God loves you. He sent his son Jesus, who died for your sins. And if you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. Okay, it's largely thought that this surged in popularity post-World War II, when people were trying to seek, how do we clarify the gospel, and it, it's, often, uh, it's often done through a sinner's prayer, a kind of repeat after me thing where you say, pray like I do, and then you, you're, you're a Christian after you say this prayer. Now, what are some things this gospel gets right? Okay, one of the things that I love about it is this movement, really, I mean, more than many other generations, both before and after, really cared that other people come to saving faith in Jesus, and, and with a sincere belief, they teach other people, how do you know that you have forgiveness of sins? This is huge. Okay, however, 
a lot of the cons start to surface when you look at most of this gospel places its chips in the future. Okay, so you say a prayer, you believe something about Jesus, and then basically you're good. And so what it does is it, you know, emphasizes cognitive ascent, making sure you have your get out of hell, get, get out of hell, you know, free card. But there's no real apprenticeship. There is no real showing how do you live once you're in the kingdom. And this in large part explains the Western phenomenon where there are millions of people in the West who identify as Christians. But in large part, their lives don't look like they know Jesus. Right? And so this is why you can get so many people who identify as Christians and yet they're just as obsessed with upward mobility as everybody else. They're just as sometimes more so cold or abusive to those who live in their homes. Okay, or they get really irritated or angry if a church or a pastor challenges them when it comes to materialism or calls them to care about racism or the poor. We saw this a lot during 2020. And a lot of this is because they learned a thin gospel, which basically teaches the private personal. Like if you've ever heard the phrase, you'd say, just don't teach on poverty, don't teach on racism, just preach the gospel. Okay, is going back to grace and obedience is a huge part of the gospel, right? Grace alone through faith alone, right? Through Christ alone, yes. Okay, but then there are very real implications of how you should live and care about those around you. Okay, so the evangelical gospel can be a little bit like getting married because just you want the legal benefits of getting married, but you don't, you don't want to grow in knowing and cherishing that person that you're married to and living like according to things that they find beautiful and good. So that's number one, evangelical gospel. I think some toes already stepped on, but let's keep going. Okay. <laughs> number two is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel emphasizes financial wealth, physical health, and life victories. Okay. It's, it's very heavy on self-help and feeling good. And if you are part of any churches who preach this all the time or you've been shaped by this tradition, so what are some things that the prosperity gospel gets right? It has a major emphasis on God's love, God's goodness, on faith. A lot of times you hear, you know, if you have enough faith, God will bless you, God will do these things. Okay, these are profoundly biblical con concepts, meaning God's love, God's goodness, and the importance of faith. The cons are this isn't the gospel Jesus taught, and it's certainly not the gospel that Jesus lived. So if what you mean by life, moving from life victory to life victory is growing into the kind of person who learns to die to self and grow in radical love, then yes, you will have life victories. If by God will keep blessing you if you have enough faith, you mean financial wealth and physical health, you're not going to like most of the New Testament. You're not going to like how Jesus lived his life. You're not going to like most of church history. And most importantly, this theology sets people up to be shattered when suffering comes, as it inevitably will. Right? Because in that category, if I'm suffering, then either God doesn't care or something's wrong with me, And so I just, I want to lovingly challenge you anytime suffering or loss comes 
and it starts shattering your, your, or shaking your faith, I'm not saying you start weeping. Okay, in the kingdom, I mean, we are, we have freedom to weep and to feel the sorrow of this world. What I mean is if you, if you start to slip into the conviction of the belief, well, God must not care, or he's a slip at the wheel, or something's wrong with me, you are being influenced by this theology. It's, Jesus never taught anything like this. Okay, he repeatedly emphasized profound suffering will come at you, right? But take heart, I've overcome the world, meaning I will be with you in it, and then I will bring you to a new earth where every tear is wiped away. Okay, so that's number two, prosperity gospel. And you can see how that gospel, going back to the now and not yet, it's very big on the, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't grasp the not yet. Okay, it thinks just the kingdom is all here. They forget the not yet component. Okay, evangelical is a large part about the, it's about the not yet. Okay, not the here and now kingdom. So number three, the social gospel, or you could call it the liberation gospel. And so if the evangelical gospel largely emphasizes forgiveness of sins and the life to come, the social gospel is almost the exact opposite of that, where it nearly erases the need for forgiveness of sins and places most of the chips in the here and now. It understands most of history as a power struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor and reduces most relationships down to power dynamics. You often hear teaching the effect of, well, Jesus was a political revolutionary. He was put to death by the state. And so we need to act in the way of Jesus, caring for the oppressed, the marginalized, and the church needs to be a beacon of light steering the country toward progressivism. What are some things this gospel does really well? Okay, number one, there is an emphasis on the now. Okay, they get that oppression is evil and that God hates it. Okay, they get that we need to care about the plight of our neighbor and the plight of people that we don't even know, okay, including with our resources. There's also an emphasis on institutional evil, something that the Bible repeatedly affirms and gives us categories for. However, here are some of the cons. Okay, the first is, and again, remember, these are, trying to sum this up, this isn't every church, maybe that you've been a part of, but by and large, here, here are things that you'll see. One is there's often a minimizing or a throwing away altogether of the Bible or theology. So often they'll use sound bites from Jesus, okay, or maybe read a passage, often something like from the prophets or something like that, right, emphasizing the need to, you know, think for emphasizing the need for things like equality and so forth. However, it's a problem to largely throw out the Bible because the Bible is the only objective basis you're going to find for things like equality. Okay, much as we hate to admit it, this, the whole paradigm we have for equality and human rights we have in the West comes from the Bible and only from the Bible, okay, not from the secular enlightenment. Number two, it places, it concentrates most of its fight in the political realm which Jesus or the first apostles in the early church never did. Number three, the teachings of Jesus are a million miles away from the religion of progressivism. Okay, so his, his teachings on forgiveness and identity and gender and sexuality and self-denial would get him swiftly cancel, canceled by the outrage, outrage mob, and in fact, he often is. 
Number four, though, and perhaps the biggest pitfall of the social gospel is that by erasing the category of sin, it ignores the deepest problem with the human race. Okay, and it imagines that through political force and through enough education, we can, re- we can obtain utopia or something close to it. Okay, it's just, it's not going to happen. Okay, if, if you want to know which is better, when we define good and evil for ourselves or when God defines good and evil, look at the world. Okay, digital addiction, technological idolatry, anxiety, depression, abuse, oppression, confusion over basic things like human, confusion and despair over basic things like human biology. Okay, suicide. You name it. Okay, these are the effects of sin. Okay, sometimes from our own doing, other times from the effects of other people. Okay, so this is why Jesus repeatedly emphasized I have come to give my life for you and then rise again from the dead so that I can bring you to God and you can have a new heart in which you can actually begin to experience healing beginning in this life and then culminating in the next. And so the category of sin is not, should never be used to make you feel awful or keep down. Sin is in, the category of sin is supposed to be an invitation to come home, to to receive Jesus' invitation that any who come to me can have life. I was uh, talking with a friend this past week, and they they gave just an example of sometimes when you see these gospels colliding, and they mentioned that you know they gave a tragic example, like for example, off, often after a mass shooting, they'll go on Facebook and they see most of their conservative friends saying like you know thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, and then they go onto Twitter and most of their liberal friends are saying thoughts and prayers don't do anything. You know we need gun reform, we need new laws, and you see what's going on there. These are I mean in reduced terms. This is, in large part, the evangelical gospel colliding with the social gospel. And what we'll begin to see, and there there are a lot of examples like this, that I hope help you begin to see how Jesus's gospel of the kingdom, or even just taking that example, it will affirm aspects of each of those. It will critique aspects of each of those. And it's not a mushy middle but it's an entirely new solution and way of thinking entirely that fulfills both of their deepest aspirations. That's what's so great about how the kingdom of Jesus works. And so for those of you who, who are here, just I know that I'm guessing some of you here, maybe you grew up in a church that beat you over the head with the Bible or wet itself to the Republican Party or was incredibly hateful toward sexual minorities. And you found yourself drifting maybe toward the social gospel or maybe no gospel at all. Okay, and you're wondering, is God there? And and if he is, does he even care? Okay, others of you may have grown up in more of a prosperity gospel and you still feel the effects of that. And you're wondering, like, what am I supposed to think about suffering? And should should I actually even pray for God to do amazing things? Some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, okay, Jesus calls me to obedience. Well, there's this area of my life that I'm really struggling in right now. So is there hope for me? And so what I hope for each of you here is the same Jesus that we craned our necks to see earlier teaching in the synagogue, okay, the same Jesus who came to these fishermen 
and said, follow me, is the same Jesus who meets you today and invites you into relationship with him. And he will challenge our blind spots. Okay, like in each of the, all those gospels we looked at, they all have blind spots, and we all have blind spots, either explicit ones we mentioned or other ones. Okay, he's going to make all of us really uncomfortable in the Sermon on the Mount. But also, these, these same fishermen who followed Jesus in the beginning, right, they had no idea that this king who demanded total allegiance, when the day came when they betrayed him and doubted him and denied him, and it was fully within his abilities and his right to respond with retaliation and judgment. This king exchanged his crown of glory for a crown of thorns and died on the cross alone, utterly ashamed, to give them forgiveness full and free and bring them into his kingdom. And he does the same for you. He will challenge you. He will expose your blind spots. But he's also, he's the only one, he's the only God who can rescue you, heal you, and move you out into the world with new purpose and meaning that's good for you, for those in your household, and for the human family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for teaching us about your kingdom uh, all throughout the Bible, and then for Jesus coming and showing us uh, what happens when a person uh, is the kingdom and through his life makes the kingdom intersect with everybody that he comes in contact with. Lord, I pray that you will help us to open ourselves up to critique uh, places where we need our beliefs and our habits to be challenged and changed. Uh, But most of all, for us to see that your kingdom is not about living according to your ethic, uh, but about knowing you and being with you um, and living that life life to the full as we do. Uh, Help us to do this as a community, um, slowly but certainly. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.